My name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here, and I will be teaching for us from that passage in Mark, Mark chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, take it and uh, turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles back on the round tables for you. Go grab one, pick one up. Uh, feel free to get up from your seat right now and do that. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, period, at home or otherwise, those are free. So take and read. They're for you. Well, I have a lot to cover this morning, so let me pray. And God, we do ask that you would prove your mercy. Realizing that as we talk about the topic of marriage, it's very painful for many. Especially as we talk about the, the issues of marriage and divorce. And that people are coming here from um, all different kinds of places. But we trust that whoever we are and wherever we are, you can minister your gracious, reigning love to us. Would you please do that through your word, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Henry VIII got permission from the Pope to marry Catherine of Aragon in June 1509. Within 20 years, something had happened and their love had grown cold. Beyond that, the physicians told Henry that Catherine was probably not going to be able to provide him an heir to the throne. And he had become infatuated with Anne Boleyn. And so... Henry had decided that the marriage just could not go on. But Henry, being a committed Bible-believing Christian, you laugh, but he was. Defender of the faith. He wrote theology books. And he knew that if he was going to get a divorce, he had to have justification from Scripture. And so he found his text... Leviticus 20, verse 16. If a man marries his brother's wife, it is an act of impurity. He has dishonored his brother, and they will be childless. So Henry said, you know what? The Pope was wrong in allowing me to divorce, a near I mean, allowing me to marry a near relative. And that's why we're childless. And the rest, they say, is history. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? When is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What are we to think about divorce? It's a, it's a very confusing issue in the church. On the one hand, there are churches in which divorce is taboo. And divorced people are ostracized. On the other hand, there are places in which divorce is looked at very laxly and, and people are not held to their, and very casually, and people are not held to their marriage vows. And most churches vacillate in between. 
And most of us wonder, should the church even be talking about this anyway? Isn't marriage a private affair between two individuals? And so what, is, what does the church have any right doing and in speaking into this matter? But considering that 40 to 50% of married couples and marriages end in divorce... The reality is, is it's a pervasive issue that affects each and every one of us in some way. Some of you have been through a divorce. Others of you are the children of divorced parents. Still others have children who have divorced. Or maybe you've walked with friends through divorce. A couple. And seen what that does to your friendship. And so the fault lines, well, they run all throughout this church and every church. And so we need to address it. And we need to address it because at some point or another, you or a friend is going to ask you what they think about the prospect of them getting a divorce. And when they ask you, you should have some kind of of biblical guidance. You should have thought about the issue biblically. Don't you think? Now, of course, going into this subject, though, I have to wade into these waters. We have to wade into these waters, but I do so cautiously. And I do so for a number of reasons. First, in talking about marriage and divorce, I do not want to give the false impression that I have a perfect marriage. Far be it the case. And this week has just proved that. Richard Hayes says, New Testament ethicist and uh, professor at Duke says, Marriage is hard for a man and a woman to build a life together, bringing their often conflicting needs and desires into a harmonious whole is a great challenge, possible only through grace. Amen and amen. Marriage is hard. Every marriage is hard. The best marriage is hard. It might even supposed to be. But we'll get to that later. So that's one reason that I'm cautious. Another reason I'm cautious, though, is because, is because this topic is painful. You know, in, in verse 8, Jesus says that when people are married, they become one flesh. And you don't rip that apart without some blood and some scars. And so I realized that to talk about the subject always risk opening old wounds and stirring up deep feelings of abandonment and shame and guilt. I also am cautious wading into this because I realize, and I'm completely aware, that the Bible's teaching on marriage and divorce has, is not popular. It's never been popular. In fact, in that text that we read earlier from Malachi, where it says that God hates divorce, do you know how the rabbis interpreted that? Their commentary on that text, God hates divorce, was this. If a man hates his wife, he can divorce her. 
Where do you get that? From God hates divorce. I mean, they just rewrote the text because it was too much. They couldn't handle it. And, and, and Mark, he, he, he's reminding us that we are in Judea in verse 1, beyond the Jordan, in Judea, where John the Baptist ministered, where John the Baptist denounced Herod's divorce, and because of that, was arrested and violently killed. The Bible's teaching on divorce has never been popular. And, case in point, look at verses 11 and 12. Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Lines we don't talk about much. Tom Wright said, in today's church, anyone who even reads verses 10 through 12 out loud is likely to be called cruel, unfeeling, unforgiving, exclusive, and a host of other names. Well, I don't really like being called names. But... I also am beholden to the Word of God and to what it says. And the fact is, is, is that, you know, the Pharisees, they try to test Jesus, they trap him, but at least they ask him the question, because most of us don't even ask the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And I've had many people, divorced people, come to me reconsidering marriage. They never bring up, only once, only once has someone brought up this verse and asked how it bears upon their life. We don't like it. But here's, here's my premise this morning. My premise is this that you will never understand the Bible's teaching on divorce until you have a clear picture of the Bible's teaching on marriage. Notice that in verse 1, the Pharisees come and they want to talk about divorce. Is it lawful for a man to get divorced? And they want to know in what circumstances might that be the case and in what way. And Jesus does something. He does a move here that is actually really instructive He takes them to creation and says, I don't want to talk about divorce first. I want to talk about marriage. Because you're never going to understand divorce until you understand marriage. In fact, no normative judgments can be made about divorce without an understanding of the Bible's narrative of marriage from beginning to end. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at three things that this text says about marriage. Three radical countercultural things, and those things are going to transform our view of marriage if we accept them. And in so doing, I believe they're going to transform our view of divorce. All right, so you ready? Here's the first. The first thing that this text tells us about marriage is that marriage is a covenant. Look at verses 6 through 9. Jesus takes us back to, to the early chapters of Genesis, and he says, From the beginning, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
Now, it's really important to know that for any Jew listening to these words, they would have heard these words, leave and cleave, or leave and hold fast, and that would have been like buzzwords. They would have known that this is covenant language. All throughout the book of Deuteronomy, when it talks about God's people and their relationship to God, it says that they are to leave their idols, leave their foreign gods, and to hold fast to the Lord their God. In other words, this is about a covenant relationship. Marriage is a covenant. That's what Malachi tells us. And a covenant is an exclusive legal relationship that is based upon promises. That's why in the marriage vows, you don't do what Jim and Pam do on the office. You don't say, oh, you make me feel so good, and I've never seen someone that's so beautiful as you right now, and my heart swoons, and the light glistening on you. And like, It's not about how you feel in the present. The marriage vows say things like this, from this day forward, better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and in health, and really bad haircuts and good haircuts. <laughs> when, when, you know, when your hormones are off the rocker, when you're having a midlife crisis, to love and to cherish till death do us part. They're promises made about the future. Now just think about how countercultural that is, how different than the way we think. Today we think that marriage is based upon this feeling of being in love. And so you fall in love, and then after you fall in love, you get married. Notice that Jesus, though, he doesn't talk about falling into anything. He doesn't talk about catching anything. He doesn't talk about being bitten or smitten by anything. Verse 7, what does he say? He says, you leave and you hold fast. That's not passive, that's active. In other words, he's saying that the basis of marriage is not about how you presently feel, but about what you promise to do. It's not about feelings of love, but it's about the practice of love. In the novel, Corelli's Mandolin, a father is giving advice to his daughter about love. And he says this, Love is temporary madness. It erupts like an earthquake and then subsides. And when it subsides, you have to make a decision. You have to work out whether your roots have become so intertwined together that it is inconceivable that you should ever part. Because this is what love is. Love is not breathlessness. It is not excitement. It is not the promulgation of promises of eternal passion. I will love you until the stars burn out. Not true. This is just being in love. Which any of us can, conceive ourse- can convince ourselves that we're in. Love itself is what is left over when being in love has burned away. And this is both an art and a fortunate accident, he says. Love itself is what is left when being in love is burned away. That's covenant love. That's covenant love. And that has serious implications. It has implications for those who are in marriages. Because marriage is hard, as I mentioned earlier, there are times when you will ask the question, and when people ask, do you still love your spouse? And most of the time when they ask that question, that question is somehow a determining factor on whether or not the relationship should dissolve. And you think, if I don't love my spouse anymore, then it should. But I want you to hear me out when I say this. Not one place in the Bible 
will you ever find love or being in love as a basis upon which to decide whether a relationship, a marriage relationship should be dissolved? So stop asking the question. It's totally irrelevant. It's totally irrelevant. Love is never the basis for a covenant marriage. Promises are. This also has implications for those of you who are looking to marry. And I know some of you are going like, what does this have to do with me? I'm in college. I'm not getting married. It has everything to do with you. Because here's the thing. Most of what you're looking for in a spouse is um, chantilly lace and a pretty face. But what you need to be looking for is someone who is faithful to covenants and understands what fidelity to a covenant is all about. Because that's what's needed to make a marriage work and to make a marriage last. More than attraction, it's action. More than compatibility, it's covenant keeping. Because here's the thing about marriage and the marriage covenant. There's no escape, there's no escape clause. Do you ever notice that? Like in the marriage vows, there's no ifs. It's not like, you don't get to say, um, to love and to have, to have and to hold in sickness and health. If and when you fulfill all my needs and stay the same and keep my juices going and all. No, there are no ifs. There's no escape clause. That's why I think, I heard once that marriage, a marriage license should come with a warning. And I think that's exactly right. It should say something like this. Warning. Marriage is a covenant ratified by God. The Surgeon General has determined that at the time of your wedding ceremony, there are certain hormones in the bloodstream which cause stomach spasms, dizziness, and poor perception. These hormones commonly subside on your honeymoon or shortly thereafter. Use extreme caution. The person that you are about to marry is a broken sinner who will fail you and hurt you and cause you a lot of pain and grief. I'm so sorry, Pam, that our marriage counselor did not give you, our pre-marriage counseling did not give you that warning. And it didn't take like into our honeymoon, right, before that wore off for Pam and I. It took literally going to the hotel. We're done with our reception. Like our first fight as a married couple, we're done with our reception. And, uh, and somebody has taken my tuxedo jacket, which I own. And I'm like, where's my tuxedo? So I'm going through all the grooms, all the people looking for my tuxedo jacket, trying to find it. So we have to, like, we go to the hotel, we come back. I, fi- I finally find the tuxedo jacket. Then we get to this hotel and it's like oh it was like some kind of it was like some kind of cult classic sci-fi movie I couldn't tell like which hall was which and where it was so we have this whole debate about where our room is and after we have walked a mile down halls that felt like a labyrinth finally we kind of go to the front desk and figure out where it is right it was like great way to start great way to start but that's marriage That is marriage. And so you might ask, if you're listening to me, why would I want to get into that? And and you should, because, you know, when the disciples heard Jesus' teaching on marriage, that's exactly what they ask in Matthew. What man should get married then? And, And what is the purposes of this thing? 
Well, verses 9 and 10, Jesus uses these four expressions to tell us what the purpose is. In four different ways, he talks about oneness. He says it's to be joined, to become one flesh, no longer two, but one. What God has joined, verse 9. In other words, the whole thing about marriage is that God takes these two distinct, separate people and he creates one new entity out of them. And this is something, by the way, that God does. It is not something that we do through some kind of contractual relationship. It's not a partnership in which you go into and you say, well, I get these benefits and, uh, and I have to give up these things, but the benefits outweigh the cost, and therefore, as long as the benefits continue to outweigh the cost, I'll continue in this thing, right? Even though that's kind of how we think, that's why we have this running tally. You know the tally I'm talking about. It's like most of us have a, the, you know, it's the, it's the miniature golf scorecard, and it's like, well, they had a girls' camp out night, so I guess I get a new car. Right? It's the cost and benefit analysis. I know, I know you don't do it, but you know, me. Um, but, but what Jesus is saying is that this isn't some partnership. It's a whole new entity that is actually bigger than those two individuals. And you just going to get a divorce is not, doesn't annul that. That's why in verses 11 and 12, Jesus says if, you do, if someone divorces and remarries another, they end up committing adultery. Because God has joined them together. And while you can try to separate it, you actually can't. Not ultimately. The new entity is there. And so here's the biblical principle. If you are divorced, if someone is divorced, there are only certain limited circumstances where remarriage is an option. And even then, it's not the first option, and it may not be the best option, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. Let me repeat that because it's not popular and nobody talks about it. If you are divorced, there are only certain limited circumstances where remarriage is an option. And even then, it's not the first option, and it may not be the best option. That's what Jesus is saying, and that's what Paul says. Now, that's what, and that's why Jesus' disciples say in Matthew, then it's better not to marry, because they get the warning label. Moreover, if marriage is about oneness and these two people becoming one, then that means it's an institution that's bigger than the sum of its parts. See, in the, in the modern therapeutic worldview, we see marriage as a means to individual fulfillment and personal wholeness. But what I want to suggest to you is that actually marriage is an institution that is beyond that. You say, wait a second, Hal, wait a second. I know Genesis, and I know what happened. It says that the man is alone, and that because the man's alone, the two shall become one flesh. He'll leave his father and mother, he'll cleave to his wife, and two will become one flesh. So marriage is supposed to meet my personal felt need of loneliness. How do I respond to that? Yes, the institution of marriage does to a degree meet the personal need of loneliness for those who are in it. 
but it doesn't just do that. Think about the context. We have one man in the whole world. He is alone. And then a marriage is created, and through this institution of marriage, children come, communities formed, people are together. In other words, what I'm saying is that the institution of marriage is not to simply cure your own personal loneliness, but societal loneliness. Because here's the thing, people are called to singleness, and I don't think the call to singleness is a call to loneliness. I absolutely don't. What I'm saying is that our marriages are actually for, and the institution of marriage is for the common good. That it has a mission beyond itself. And we have to stop thinking about it as, and the church has bought into this, we have to stop thinking about it as this is primarily there to fulfill my own personal needs and personal fulfillment. It's not. That's why those of you who are foster parents are doing such awesome work. And you are a model to us of what this is about. Every marriage, our marriages, every institution of marriage, it's for us all. And therefore, we all have an interest in it. And therefore, it's not simply a private affair that you can decide about personally. That's why we need societal laws about marriage. Because we all have a vested interest in it. It's not our own personal possessions. It's actually for everyone. So, so this, this marriage, it has a, a mission beyond itself. And if it's meant for the benefits of others, for the benefits of society, then it can't be a private affair. And personal happiness and personal fulfillment can't be the final determining criteria about whether or not we should get in it or dissolve it. It cannot. Because it has a purpose beyond that. And, and what, if, what if your personal peace and what if your personal happiness, what if that's not the point of all, at all? Which brings us to the second thing that this text teaches about marriage. Marriage is not simply a covenant. Marriage is also a cross. I have a friend, and when he does premarital counseling, he always starts by saying this, marriage is hard, and it's glorious, and it's an adventure, and it's exciting, and it's really hard. And that's true. Marriage is hard. When two people come together, and bring all their sin and their differences together. It's hard. At some point this week, that's why at some point this week, most of the people who are single in here said, I'd really like to be married. And that's why at some point this week, most of the people who are married in here said, wouldn't it be nice to be single? At some point in some way. But because... Marriage is, well, it's like you too. It's like Bono sings, with or without you. I can't live with or without you. It's beautiful and it's hard. And I don't think that it is an accident that we are right in the middle of Mark, where Mark has three predictions about Jesus going to the cross, dying and rising again, and where, Jesus, where Mark is in his central section talking about discipleship and how we as his disciples have to take our cross and follow him. That's the place where he talks about marriage. Why? 
Because marriage, Mark is saying, is an aspect of discipleship, and it's a form of sacrificial service. In other words, marriage is a cross. And so we cannot disaggregate our relationship and our covenant with God from our relational covenant in marriage. That is Malachi. You were unfaithful to the covenant with God because you're unfaithful to the covenant with marriage. And how you treat your spouse and how you live in marriage and how you live toward the institution of marriage, whether or not you're married, is actually an issue of discipleship for all of us. It's because maybe God wants to do something through our marriages Maybe, maybe he wants to get us in this situation. Maybe through like Chantilly Lace and a pretty face, he gets us in this situation where we can't get out of it. And we have to learn to be patient and kind. And we have to learn about our pride and to crucify that with his passions. Maybe he's bringing us into this so that, so that, he might make us forgiving and learn to receive forgiveness and love. Maybe he's bringing us into this thing so he can make us like his son. So he can sanctify us. His son who took on a covenant and took on a cross for his bride. What if rather than your best life now, marriage is God's way of getting us crucified so that we can have our best life ever. So that we can lose our life in order to find it. So that we can give up in order to gain. See, popular thinking is that to require people to stay in a difficult marriage is harsh and contrary to love. But what if, what if, someone leaving a hard and difficult marriage is actually a rejection of God's grace in their life and his plan to make them like Jesus? What if actually letting people leave hard and difficult marriages is circumventing the, the glorious future that they have in Jesus Christ to be conformed to their image, or conformed to his image? Well, that totally changes how you think about it. Uh, what if by leaving marriages, people are actually missing out, not on their best life now, but on their best life ever? You know, most of us think that if marriage is hard and if it's painful and it's difficult, then it's not working. But I would suggest to you that actually if it's hard and painful and difficult, that's because it is working. That's what makes you like Jesus. And so if you have a marriage that's easy and not hard or painful and difficult, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> For some of you, that should be a deep comfort. For others of you, you probably need to pursue your marriage more. Because there's probably too much distance between you and your spouse. And because there's too much distance, there's no friction. And because there's no friction, there's no opportunity for sanctification in those areas. See, we often look for someone, 
this is now applying to you who aren't married. We often are looking for someone who's very compatible with us. You know, I have, I have couples in, and they say, and I ask them, I said, you know, why, uh, so why are you getting married to this other person? It's like, we both like sushi, we both like snow peas, we like long walks on the beach, we like to swim together, you know, we both like the same bands, we like, you know, we're compatible. And I'm like, okay. No one comes in to me and says, because we're totally opposite and we know that we'll sanctify each other that way. And most of us, most people, they, they get out of a marriage because they're incompatible. But listen, if you are perfectly compatible with your spouse, then your marriage covenant is perfectly pointless because you're not able to sanctify one another in that. And besides, you're not perfectly compatible with your spouse because two sinners are usually not compatible with one another. Just saying. So, this is what this means. Your biggest problem in marriage is not incompatibility. Jesus says that our biggest problem in marriage is hardness of heart. In verse 5, he says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote you this commandment. That is, Moses gave the right to have a certificate of divorce because of your hardness of heart. And in Mark, hardness of heart is specifically defiance against the will of God and unbelief in Jesus. And here's what that means. It means that if the legislation that Moses gave was a concession to the hardness of heart, then it cannot reflect God's will. And while this side of the new heavens and the new earth, because we live in a fallen world and because a lot of mess happens, the reality is, is that, marriages, uh, that some marriages end in divorce. And the reality is, is, listen to me, those are losses. Jesus will win the war. Sometimes there are losses in the battles. And it's always a loss. Even when, even when, because of the brokenness and fallenness of, the world, of this world, it seemed like there was no other way. And so it's something to grieve. But for disciples of Jesus, for whom, who believe that with God all things is possible, for disciples of Jesus who overcomes the hardness of heart, to stay in a difficult marriage or a marriage that is stressful and trying, and to continue to pursue a one flesh union, well that is a sign and a witness that the kingdom has come. And so some of you are in that place, and I want to say thank you. Thank you because you are a sign and a witness to me that the new creation has come, that the Spirit is at work in this world, and you are a sign and witness to me that Jesus is on his throne and he is reigning, and he is reigning through your life and through your marriage. So those of you who are in that place, thank you. I need you. You not only are a sign and witness of the kingdom, but your marriage proclaims the gospel. And that's the last point. Marriage is not only a covenant. Marriage not only is a cross, but marriage is about Christ. Look at verses 6 through 8 again. 
Jesus says, from the beginning, God made the male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his, uh, his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, what's going on here? Well, in the Genesis account, you have Adam. And it, God says, it's the only thing God says is not good. You hear, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then it's not good that the man is alone before the fall. Not good. And so, then what you have is he says, I will create a helper, suitable, corresponding, fitting to him. And then you have this kind of comic scene where all the animals are paraded before uh, Adam. And it's like, are you my helper? You know, zebra, not my helper. Are you my helper? Giraffe, not my helper. Are you my helper? Hippo, definitely not my helper, right? You have this kind of scene, it's kind of comic, and Adam's saying, and, it's, and this is, but no helper was found suitable for him, corresponding to him. And then Eve is created. And then, alas, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and we think that, that Adam has found his helper. And then we read these words, but Paul says something really interesting. He says in Ephesians 5.32, this mystery is profound, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Therefore, a man shall leave his father. Why should a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife? I'm saying this mystery is profound, but it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, what Paul is saying is that, that the marriage covenant and marriage was always supposed to be a picture and a proclamation of something bigger, of something better that pointed to something else, and that is the relationship between God and his people. Do you know that that the one who is called a helper throughout the Bible most is God. God is the helper, and he is the helper of his people. And so when we, when we get into marriage relationships and give ourselves sacrificially, we actually point to the God who took on flesh and made himself fitting for us by hanging on a tree. And getting himself in a, in a covenant. In a covenant that did not have, it did not have an exit clause. So that he might be crucified for you and for me and so that he might win his bride. You see, it was out of Adam's bleeding side that Eve was formed. And it's out of the second Adam's bleeding side that you and I, the bride of Christ, is formed. Marriage points to that relationship. And that is why we grieve divorce. That is why we grieve every divorce, not simply because of the deep pain and wreckage that it causes from generation to generation, but because it tells a lie about Christ and the church, about God who is faithful to the end, about God who never gives up on his whoring bride. And so it affects the health and witness of the whole community. And here's what this means. Because each marriage and every marriage are about the health and witness of the proclamation of the gospel, which is the church's role in this world. It means this, that our marriages are not a private issue for individuals and couples to consider on their own. But actually they must be considered in light of the health and witness of the church as a whole. So let me put it bluntly. 
when you come into this church and you become a member of this church, whether you're single or whether you're married, my marriage is your business. And your marriage is my business. Because the reality is, we all have a vested interest in the, in the promotion of healthy marriages that tell the story of Christ in the church. And therefore, we all need to be about their promotion. We need to be about saving them and helping them when they struggle, and we need to be about promoting them and serving them where we can. So whether you're called to marriage, you need to serve the institution of marriage. And whether you're not called to marriage, whether you're called to singleness, you need to serve the institution of marriage. So, that means... Come over to my house at 7 o'clock. We'll let you have Neve and we'll have a date. I jest. I jest. But I actually think that it's extremely important. It's extremely important. And it's a way, single people, that you can serve, that you can serve the marriages in our church by having people... Pursue intimacy together. And married people, your marriage is not for you. And guess what that means? That means that there should be a seat at your table for those single people who are babysitting your kids. Because we're all in this together, you see. And it's reciprocal. So, Let the marriage bed be held in honor by all, and let the marriage bed be kept undefiled by all. Hebrews 13.4. Now I realize that at this point, there are some of you who are feeling deep shame. Some of you because you've been in a marriage and it's ended, and it's divorced, ended in divorce. Maybe you wanted that to happen, maybe you didn't. Some of you uh, are feeling that. Here's what I want to say to you. First off, let me say this. Jesus' grace is bigger. And Jesus can make all things new. And that marriage was never your ultimate marriage. And your ultimate marriage between you and, and God and Christ, it is undissolved. And that's the one that will fulfill your deepest desires. And it's the one that fulfills my deepest desires. And everything else is a pale comparison and pointer. And so if you're in a situation where your marriage has ended and it's irreversible, trust in the grace of Jesus Christ. Know that he loves you and he holds you. And that there is a river of grace to catch us all in at the bottom. And if you're in a difficult marriage and God is giving you an opportunity to look like Jesus, please avail yourself of that. Please avail yourself of that opportunity. Others of you are feeling shame because maybe you're single, and you say, I want to be in a marriage like that. I want to I produce that picture, but I'm not sure that I can. Or maybe you're feeling hopeless because you realize that, that based on what the Bible says and the honor of the institution of marriage that you should not and you do not have the option to remarry. What can I say to you? I want you to know that I don't think that Eve was a really good helper. 
I want you to know that when Eve came, she didn't really protect Adam from, from royally screwing it up for the entire world and world history. That they still sinned. And so you have to wonder, was she the perfect helper? There's a president of Columbia Bible Seminary and Bible College that was named Robertson McQuillan. His wife, Muriel, contracted Alzheimer's disease just after he took the presidency of the seminary. He had to step back from his duties, and he resigned his post. He cared for her. He bathed her. He fed her, uh, and he spent his days with her. One day, they were in an airport in Atlanta, and they were just walking back and forth, walking back and forth on a delay, and it was the same conversations over and over again, and she was asking the same questions over and over again, and she'd just walk around over and over again. He's following her around, and the conversations didn't really make sense, and she's being kind of loud, and there was this gal that was across from them, a young executive type, and she looked up, and she just kind of, she just kind of mumbled under her breath, and Robertson thought that she was disgruntled or asked him something or whatever, and he said, you know, excuse me, and she said, oh, I was just asking myself, will I ever find a man to love me like that? I think many of us are asking ourselves, will we ever find a man? Will we ever find a woman? Will we ever find someone to love me like that? Yes, you will. Yes, you will. Isaiah 54, sing, O barren woman who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. Will I ever find a man like that? Who is your helper? He is faithful. And he is your helper Hebrews says. And so this mystery is profound. But I am speaking of Christ in the church. I am speaking of your husband who loved you and gave himself for you. I am speaking of the covenant that will not be broken because it is an eternal covenant wrought in his own blood. I am speaking of the one who, even though God gave his bride, Israel, a certificate of divorce, He never left her nor forsake her, and he brought her back. He brought her back to life through his own bleeding side. You have a husband. He is your helper, and he is mine. So may our marriages bear witness against all shallow, self-seeking visions of love. May our community of faith stand around and support marriages in love. And may we receive love from those marriages. And may our marriages bear witness to the truth of the love of God. And make God's love visible to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.